Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Basord. I'm a consultant psychiatrist based in private practice in Harvey Street, London, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Catherine Haslam, who's Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Queensland. Um, Catherine's doing some very interesting work, which is really relevant right now because of the notion of social isolation as a result of the pandemic. And it's a, an initiative which um, intends to help cure this problem or treat this problem of social isolation. And it's part of a broader idea, which is sometimes referred to as the social cure. So first question to you, Catherine, do you agree or believe that at this precise moment, because of the pandemic worldwide, we're likely to face um, a serious pandemic as well of loneliness or isolation. And this has repercussions in terms of people's psychology. What are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I think that that's actually a good point. And I think it's a question that's being raised in lots of people's minds. I do think that uh, the pandemic will have an influence, not on everybody, but it will have an impact on some. And particularly, I think that the impact is gonna really strike home for those people who are already feeling socially disconnected before the pandemic and before the virus. And we know this from some of the data that we've actually been collecting. Um, and this is something that's a survey that's been led by a colleague of mine at the University of Queensland. What she's found is that the people who were more socially disconnected before uh, the pandemic, they're the ones who are suffering the consequences now. They're feeling more psychologically distressed they're feeling more uh, trustful, uh, less trustful, sorry, of others. Um, and the other interesting thing that I think is coming out of this is the data from young people. So what these data are actually showing is that young people are more concerned about becoming isolated during COVID than older people. And that's interesting in the context of young people being more tech savvy, uh, being more tech savvy using the instruments and the vehicles of connectedness uh, that we're being encouraged to use right now. Uh, is that possibly because maybe old people are more secure about their relationships uh, and maybe young people are less? I just wonder why that might be. Look, I think that that, that is part of the story. But I also think the other part of the story is what we actually know from other data, and you've got that data in the UK, but also we've got this, uh, similar data in Australia on uh, loneliness effects. And the young people are actually the most vulnerable. Um, in both of our countries, and I think across the world internationally, we're seeing that young people are the ones who are most vulnerable to social isolation. And it may be an element of that those social ties aren't yet um, fully established, um, as they might be in older people. Um, but I think that there are a range of other factors too. There are additional pressures, um, social pressures, that I think that young people face that older people don't necessarily face. So I think that there are other factors that are coming into that story too. So um, before we get into your particular very interesting program, what, why, why is, I mean, this was a concern of yours before the pandemic happened. Why, why is this a serious problem? And what are the health implications, physical and mental, of social isolation? Look, I think that there's a difference. It's probably, it's probably worth sort of having a bit of a conversation about social isolation and loneliness. Because I think that we use those terms interchangeably. Um, and they're related but they, uh, you know, they mean slightly different things. So social isolation is that physical state of living alone and being alone. And if you're living alone, it certainly can increase the risk that you have of developing loneliness. But just because you live alone doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be experiencing loneliness. And in fact, as we know, some people actually seek living alone, seek a bit of isolation so they can engage in, a, in a, an activity or engage in some deeper thought. 
Um, it's loneliness that's actually hazardous to our health. That's the thing that's toxic. And that's that psychological state of distress that people experience um, when your relationships just aren't the way that you'd like them to be. And that's the thing that's actually been most damaging to health. And it's that loneliness angle, that link between loneliness and the health consequences of loneliness that was particularly striking for us and why we've been particularly interested in it in our research. And I think that perhaps some of the most striking data about this, because there's loads of studies on, on this particular link, but perhaps the most influential study has come from a US psychologist, Julianne Holt-Lundstadt, who actually tried to draw all of the findings together of these studies in a meta-analysis. And what she found was that social, what she was looking at, she was looking at the effect of social connectedness and other uh, health-related uh, behaviours on life expectancy. And what she actually found was that social disconnection rivaled smoking behaviour. So um, only smoking came close to social disconnection in um, reducing your life expectancy. And being socially disconnected was actually a greater threat to life expectancy than obesity, physical inactivity, lack of exercise, and even alcohol consumption. And these are things that are health priorities in most countries. And yet what, what's interesting is that loneliness hasn't been a health priority. But I think that, you know, maybe we're starting to see some change in that particular landscape. Okay, but um, let me just attack that idea a little bit. Is it mm -hmm. possible that the key variable isn't the loneliness? There's something else going on. Maybe people have a personality disorder and that makes them lonely because they have difficulty getting on with people. And it's that personality disorder, some other variable lying beneath the loneliness that explains the health outcome. Is, is that mm -hmm. possible? Well, I think that it's certainly something that uh, people have actually been thinking about when... When people are thinking about, um, when people think, you know, most people think that to join groups or to be part of groups, um, it's really something that's aligned with uh, being gregarious, being more outgoing, being of a particular personality type. But the evidence doesn't really support that case strongly. Think about the fact that there are many different types of groups that don't require us to be gregarious. Um, and sometimes we belong to a range of different groups. Some of them may be more socially outgoing than others. I think the stronger predictor of your ability to join and sustain groups is, is, is probably social disadvantage, socioeconomic disadvantage. And that kind of relates to this idea of um, disadvantage, reducing the opportunities that you've got, reducing your resources um, that you can use to engage with those groups. And I actually think that that's a good message because that's something that we have a greater capacity to change as opposed to changing personality variables that might be a little bit more difficult to shift. Okay, so you've got this really astonishing finding that, that being lonely may be as bad for you as, as smoking. Um, but, but again, what are the theories as to why being lonely is, is having this impact? Is it the emotional impact? Is it mediated through becoming clinically depressed? Or are there other things going on? Like, like being part of a group means you get information. Um, people gossip and that information may be helpful. Um, it, mm. People may be able to lend you a cup of sugar because they, you, you, you may need instrumental help. What are the theories as to why being lonely is so toxic for your health? 
I think that most, so the, the things that you're actually mentioning there are certainly playing a role in all of this, absolutely. Um, if you're socially connected to people, then you have access to various forms of social support, uh, various resources from people. Um, those so the, the social contacts we have are kind of social uh, psychological resources. They give us meaning and purpose in life. They reduce our stresses, and I think that the that's the big biological link that a lot of research is actually pointing to, uh, that loneliness actually reduces your access to social supports, and when you have reduced access to those social supports, then that increases your stress reaction, your stress response to different, uh, to different situations. And loneliness is associated with increased levels of social anxiety. And it's how people respond uh, in those social situations and those elevated levels of anxiety that tend to have this kind of effect of wear and tear on the body. And so that's how, how loneliness impacts physiologically on our health. And that's, that's, that's one of the main, main theories that's been proposed. So what people did up until now, even if they were trying to do as doctors something about people's loneliness, was things like a thing called social prescribing. Tell yeah. us a bit about what that is and why that often maybe doesn't work so well. Well, I think that you've got some mixed mixed results on that one. So I do think that um, the UK is actually uh, really doing a great job in taking a lead on social prescribing. So social prescribing is this idea that... Um, uh, people who are experiencing loneliness, attending a GP practice, the GP can actually provide a social prescription. And that social prescription links people up to a community navigator or a link worker that can um, help people, giving them hands-on support to actually connect them with groups and various uh, social activities in their local community. And look, Yes, it's true that there's been some mixed evidence of uh, the value of social prescribing, uh, but there's also been some positive evidence about the value of social prescribing. And I think that perhaps part of the mixed nature of that, that evidence probably reflects the fact that, you know, we need to work very hard about which groups we actually connect people to in the community. So what our research actually highlights very clearly is that it matters which group which which group connections or which social connections people actually align themselves to because not all groups and not all social connections are actually going to be health enhancing and reduce your sense of loneliness. Right, so before we get into Groups for Health, the, mm -hmm. the initiative, um, let's just talk a little bit about two other key concepts. Social identity, uh, what's that? And social yeah. identity capital, what's that? Okay, so social identity refers to probably most simply our social self. It's that part of our identity that actually comes from the social groups that we belong to. And our social groups are pretty broad. There are family groups, there are friendship, neighbourhood sporting groups uh, that we engage with. And when these groups become part of us, when they become part, integrated as part of us, as part of our social identity, then they actually have a pretty powerful influence on how we think and behave. So when we see ourselves and behave as members of the Taylor family, as health professionals, as British, for example, well, those groups, when they're salient, they actually have a very big influence on how we think, feel and behave. They have a very strong influence on who we're open to seeking support from. They influence who it is that we um, provide support to. But they also influence, you know, the kind of advice we take on board. So um, our the groups that matter to us, that are part of our social identity, we're actually going to take on board their health messages, for example, uh, more keenly and more strongly than a group that doesn't actually matter to us. 
So these groups have a pretty wide-ranging impact on all sorts of behaviour. And as you know, the, the, the behaviours that we've been particularly interested in have been the, the health behaviours and the impact that these groups actually have on health. So this notion of social identity capital, think about capital as like having money in the bank, but social identity capital is about social group capital, social group resources that you actually have access to. And this is, you know, the more groups, social groups and associated identities that you have as resources that you can draw on uh, for support in periods of challenge and adversity, um, then and the more that they're a positive influence on your life, well, then the better your health and well-being is going to be as a result. And the critical aspect here is that identity is the critical part of this story. As I was allu alluding to earlier on, it's not just that any group will do. It's only those groups, and this is what the evidence shows, it's only those groups that people align with, that they identify with, that they connect and bond with, that actually have the capacity to change behaviour and to influence our health in a range of different ways. So, in other words, some groups are meaningful and impactful in terms of uh, one's health and well-being, uh, but others that you may be a member of are less, are less part of that process. That's certainly true. I mean, there's one of the things that we do know is that there are groups that we belong to. Some of them are more important in our lives. Some of them are less important in our lives. And their importance might change in different situations and contexts and at different times. So we can belong to multiple groups, uh, but it's likely that there are going to be different groups that are going to take salience and importance and have be a stronger influencer in different times and in different contexts. Okay, so what is Groups for Health? Okay, Groups for Health is actually a program that we've developed that aims to give people the knowledge and the skills that they need uh, to build their social identities and sustain them in ways that actually protect their health. So the whole aim of this program is really just to try and put people in the driver's seat to increase their confidence so they can actually manage their groups in ways that are supportive of health. And um, it's broken down and it's, it's, it's very practical and, and uh, extremely helpful uh, and certainly has changed my thinking about helping mm -hmm. uh, patients. But it's broken down into, uh, it's structured around five modules, yeah. um, schooling, scoping, sourcing, scaffolding and sustaining. So first mm -hmm. of all, what's schooling? So schooling is pretty much psychoeducational. Um, the whole point of this is to actually raise awareness of uh, people's groups and the groups that people, uh, the group, the influence that these groups can actually have on people's lives. There's evidence out there um, showing that the groups are things that we, groups are entities that we often take for granted. And so people aren't really aware of the value that these groups actually play in our lives. So in addition to raising awareness of groups in general, part of this module is to get people to start thinking about the idea that some groups can be helpful and influential on our health in positive ways, but there are also some groups that can be harmful. And so this is what we're actually trying to capture in that schooling, um, schooling element. Okay, then we come on to scoping and mm -hmm. another concept of social maps. What are those? And, and what's yeah, scoping? so scoping is, is trying to raise people's awareness of the groups that are in their lives now. And the way that we do this is through this mapping exercise that you've just mentioned. And it's a tool that we've developed specifically for this purpose. And the whole idea here is to help people to try and create visual illustrations of the groups that are part of their lives currently. And as part of this illustration, we help people to think about which groups are important, which groups are less important, how individuals relate to their groups, but also how the groups relate to each other. Um, and 
we use that map to get people to reflect on things that are working well, but also things that are working less well and that they might actually like to change. And we use that as a basis of work that comes up in the coming modules, in, the, the, uh, in sourcing and scaffolding that comes after that. And there's an illustration in one of the papers that you've written. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the one I'm looking at is in the Journal of the Psychologist, which is yeah. very interesting because um, it, what, it, what it reminded me of is the fact that often when you're feeling lonely, you don't realise, um, even though you may think you're very isolated, you still are intrinsically a part of groups that you've probably taken for granted. Like everyone's been to school. A mm -hmm. lot of people have been to university. Um, some people attended church at some time in the past and, and most people are members of some kind of family. So yeah. even when people come into the clinic and say, you know, I have no one, actually it's impossible to be a human being without in your journey of through life be, being attached or being part mm -hmm. of at least some group. So it kind of reminds people there's a resource there you could go back to. I, I, yeah. I, that's one of the really powerful things for me about the, the mapping idea. And I think that, I mean, the other thing that we've actually found that's pretty influential about mapping and the power of that is that it can kind of change the conversations you start having with people. Instead of starting a conversation in a clinic about, you know, well, what brings you here, implying what problem brings you here, it actually starts from a completely different angle. You can start, I mean, and I know that some people have actually tried starting this conversation about telling you, what's your life like? Tell me about the people who are part of it. Tell me about the groups who are part of your life. And it can kind of start a very different style of conversation um, that starts getting to, you know, people to think about not only about raising awareness of those groups that are in their lives, but how they might actually be able to be drawn upon as a resource, as you're saying. Okay, so then there's the next part of the module is sourcing. Mm -hmm. What's that? So sourcing is about trying to help people make the most of the existing relationships that they've got. So by raising awareness of the groups that people actually have, that kind of reminds them, as you say, of the, of the groups that are part of their lives and that might actually be drawn on for support. But another important element of this particular um, module is that we're trying to help people to identify the groups that might be particularly health enhancing, the ones that might actually be, be a very have a positive influence. Um, in their lives and on their health. And it's starting to get people to start thinking about strategies and ways of trying to make the most of those groups and connect with those strongly, increase their importance in ways that can actually support their health. Okay, then the next part of the module is scaffolding. What's scaffolding? Yeah. So scaffolding is a way of extending on people's groups. So sourcing is about making the most of the groups you have. Scaffolding is about joining new groups and the Groups for Health program is pretty much new for everybody and it's a vehicle for people to actually try out some of the skills that they're developing and it's a bit of a platform too that people can actually use to start thinking about the groups that they can join outside of the Groups for Health group. Um, and as part of this scaffolding uh, module, what we also do is we work with people to develop some social plans. Uh, developing some concrete plans that they can actually trial outside of the program to identify groups that they might want to um, strengthen, but also groups that they might want to join as uh, part of extending their social networks. And that's something that they actually trial out there for about, we usually use leave about four weeks touch base with people in between just to see how they're going. But then we bring them back for a final module of um, sustaining. And the whole idea of this is kind of a, it's a bit of a booster session, but it's also a way of um, trying to celebrate wins, talk through some challenges and troubleshoot some of those challenges, but also to reinforce key elements of the program as well.
Now, this is the bit that I think is really interesting because I think this is where people run into trouble, particularly. Mm-hmm. So this notion of new groups, first of all, yeah. um, the, the notion of trying something new, people people are scared to try something new. They've, they've yeah. got to cross a barrier of anxiety and fear. People are afraid of rejection. Um, people are afraid of walking into a room where no one knows them. So there's all sorts of um, psychological um, hurdles people have to cross into this territory of, mm-hmm. of new groups. What, what are your thoughts about that? Look, I do think that the social anxiety, the fear of rejection, all of that kind of sort of is intertwined. And I do think it's a, it's an element, um, particularly when you're actually trying to connect with groups. Groups can feel a little bit more threatening. It's not just one other person. It tends to be a number of other people. Um, so that fear, um, part of the program is to try and address some of that fear. But the other thing that often comes up for us is not just about the fear because we can troubleshoot some of those fears. We can work with people to, you know, some some of, the, some of the things that actually happen in the Groups for Health program is that people actually connect with each other and say, yeah, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to try something like that out. And they go out and they do this together so they don't actually feel like they're doing it on their own, which is the thing that kind of contributes to the fear. The thing that I think people really struggle with as well is, They just don't know where to start. So if you're somebody who's experienced social disconnection for quite some time, it's really hard to know where it is that you actually start on this journey. How do I identify a group that's going to float my boat? How do I identify a group that's really going to work for me? And what you want to do in the, what we what we try and do within our program is to try and work with people to try and understand what are the important parts of themselves. What are the things that really interest them what are their interests what are their values what are their um, what are the things that they really enjoy doing that help them feel positive about themselves because it's groups that allow them to live out those parts of their lives that are more likely to be more positive and be ones that they hang on to so it's really important to try and work with people to identify groups that they will connect with and will connect with in positive ways now, again, I think this is really interesting because I think that groups don't exist in an abstract sense. Usually groups mm-hmm. exist for a reason. And often mm-hmm. that reason is the group perform an activity. So let's take an example like a tennis club. Yeah. Um, people go and play tennis. They hang out afterwards. And by, by the way, there's some really interesting research that in terms of sports that prolong longevity, tennis is, is one of the best ones. And one of the mm-hmm. theories is... Um, in fact, it's better than running, is the social element that people yeah. play tennis and they hang out together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, that's really fascinating. Now, but the thing is this, I think a lot of people who are isolated don't have that activity or interest that takes them on a journey into a group. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons and I play a lot of sports, I play tennis, I play golf, lots of other things. Um, if you if you if you learn tennis at school and and pick up a tennis racket, you can go into any part of the world and be immediately part of a group because you can walk into any tennis club. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, people who are taking part in social activities like people to come in and engage with them. And this is one of the central problems and maybe a failure of the education system that it teaches people algebra, but it doesn't take seriously the notion that leisure interests are actually going to be a major part of adult life in terms of taking you into a journey into groups. So my issue is that people need an activity that 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 draws them into a group, like tennis, and often people don't have that. So so what are your thoughts about that point? Well, I certainly think that there's, I mean, the tennis example is actually quite a nice one there because it is a way that you can not only, you not only engage in the interest, but the interest actually provides you with an opportunity to talk to others. I often think about this, uh, the different activities that people also do too. Um, 
and I, I've worked with older people in in part of my in part of my past history. And one of the things that older people really hate doing is going out there um, and walking. Okay, this is a generalized generalized statement, but sometimes you know when you're trying to encourage older people to be more active, the last thing they want to be is is told to go out there and just do something like you know get out there and walk and do it in a drilled and regimented fashion. But what the evidence shows is that if you're doing this socially and you're doing it with other people, then that's actually giving you uh, a reason to kind of go out there and engage in that and quite often people will turn around and say well actually I'm not necessarily going out there and doing the walking for me I'm actually doing it for Mary or I'm doing it for Bill because it's really important that they come along to that and that supports uh, that particular activity but I don't think it's just about those sporting interests and look I, I, I don't deny that engaging in physical activity is important for your health we see that evidence um, that evidence is quite clear. But there are also other activities that you can engage in that don't necessarily have to be about physical activity. Um, you know, people who join chess clubs, people who join book clubs, um, they're different activities that foster different interests, some of them that might be a bit geeky. You know, there might be some, you know, the people who actually like going out there and enjoying uh, some maths together. Um, and so they're using that as a basis for interest to actually get together. So I don't think our interests need to be confined to a particular domain. But what I do think is that previous experiences of engaging in those interests is a really important factor. One of the things that our research um, has actually shown is that people who have experience of engaging with groups, particularly before they experience any challenge or adversity like the one we're experiencing currently, well, they're the ones who find it a lot easier to reconnect uh, when they find that they've been disconnected um, and to make new connections. So it's that kind of experience of having had those connections in the past that make it a lot easier. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it was very interesting when I was when you were thinking of a non-sporting group. You, you came up with chess, which is exactly yeah. something else that I do um, mm -hmm. as well. So I, I agree with you completely. Um, but what I'm driving at, and I think this is really interesting, is that schools and universities place great emphasis on the central point of being at a school or university is that you learn algebra or you learn something a part of the educational process. And all the group activities are off on the edge, on the margins. You know, the chess club is something that happens on the side of the school, as it were, or outside of school hours and, and same, the same university. But I, I believe that, that actually that those things need to be thought of as actually more central part of what the school or the university is about because in a sense the the journey that people are in through life um that being attending a chess club at university or at school is it may be in the end more powerful in terms of your outcomes in terms of longevity than the algebra that you learned at school again what, what are your thoughts about that idea it should be a deeper part of the educational process yeah um, Look, and i people in this yeah, and I look. I don't. I don't deny that that's a really important part of it. I mean, I think that making sure that these elements are part of our educational system is pretty essential. Um, and I do think that um, often. I mean, I, I do think it tends to be the combination of both those factors. It's the interest as well as the group engagement that's actually working together. So there's no point in joining a group that you just that that is going to engage in something that doesn't really matter to you because you're just not going to engage. You're going to walk and you're going to walk away from it. So it's it's the two of those elements need to actually work together. And I think that, you know, okay, 
we may not have we know we may not emphasize it as much as we should but i do think that people are now starting to recognize how much of a cost there is to our lives if we don't engage in learning in group contexts if we don't engage um, in different aspects of uh, developing ourselves whether it's physically whether it's intellectually in those group contexts there is an adaptation of our program, Groups for Education, that um, a colleague of ours, Sarah Bentley, is actually leading on, and that's ex touching on exactly that point. You know, one of the things that it's a, it's a program that's been developed, it's an adaptation of Groups for Health, but it's really, really targeting people who are uh, starting university um, and transitioning to university studies. We certainly see that there's a lot of evidence of people who are experiencing mental health problems in that transition. Um, but what it targets is helping people to draw on the groups in their in that intellectual and educational space, not only to support their learning, uh, because we see very positive effects that, that that engagement has, that kind of group engagement has on performance outcomes, but also to try and tackle indirectly some of the mental health problems that we're hearing about even more um, in the context of this particular transition. So the final part of the module for Groups for Health is called sustaining. Tell us a mm -hmm. bit about that. Okay, so sustaining is really, as I said, it's pretty much just uh, troubleshooting module. It's a module that we um, we try and try and understand how people uh, what what actions people have actually taken to engage with groups. It's a way it provides us with an opportunity to troubleshoot any experience challenges that they've actually had. But one of the things that we also do as part of that module is we come back to those identity maps that we talked about earlier on and that we do in our second module. And we're trying to see whether we recreate, help, we ask people to recreate those social identity maps to see whether their social worlds have actually changed. Now, what tends to happen in a short period of time, because it really isn't a long period of time, if you're thinking about a month or you know, five weeks down the track, um, what tends to happen is we see first emerging a change in the quality of the relationships. So people are making more of their relationships. They're becoming much more important. They're drawing on them more effectively. Um, it tends to take a little bit longer for people to actually expand on those group memberships that they have, and it takes them a little bit longer just to join a few more groups. Um, sometimes it takes that little bit more confidence, a few more trials. Um, but certainly what we're seeing, even in a short period of time, from those social identity maps, is that the quality of those relationships is really changing. And what we do know is quality of relationships is really key in terms of supporting health and well-being. So if a clinician is listening to this and wants to know more about Groups for Health or wants to get involved in prescribing it for their patients, or if a layperson is listening and wants mm -hmm. to get engaged in it, can you point them to any resources um, or, or signpost them into how to take it forward? Yeah, so we, um, I think that you've got a copy of our, our volume, The New Psychology of Health Unlocking the Social Cure. Uh, we certainly speak about translation of that social identity approach to health in the final chapter, and that final chapter is there. They can find out a little bit more about um, the Groups for Health program and why it's important uh, in a piece that we wrote um, about a year ago in The Psychologist um, about the program. But we also uh, have a website, a Groups for Health website that tries to give people resources. We're in the process of actually just updating, updating that particular program, um, uh, that, that website, so that people can get access to resources, gives them information about what the program is about. 
Um, it also tells them about adaptations of the program that we've got. So Groups for Health was developed specifically for people who are experiencing challenges. You know, the people who um, are you know, experiencing chronic loneliness and we're seeing that the program has some significant effects in reversing uh, those, in, re in reducing loneliness and depression. Um, but we're also, what we also know that when people experience just everyday life challenges, you know, expected and unexpected life challenges, that that increases people's risks of social disconnection. So we've developed some adaptations of the program. Some are a hybrid online face-to-face, Groups for Health was developed originally as a face-to-face, -face. and we have another adaptation, Groups for Health Retirement, that's specifically targeting the people in that transition to retirement, based on evidence that we've got that in that transition, in the early years of that transition, um, people who lose groups in that transition, even losing two groups, increases your risk of um, mortality by about 12%. So, and that's a fully online program that people can kind of engage in, in a preventative way as a way of checking in and seeing whether there are things that they can actually do to improve, um, in, improve their connectedness in periods of life change. And all of that can be accessed through our uh, Groups for Health website that they can access through our psychology department at the University of Queensland. So the title of that book again, The New Psychology the New of Health, Unlo Unlocking, Unlocking the Social, the social Cure, yes. published by Routledge. Um, yes, yes. Um, so one final um, point I want to put to you. Um, mm -hmm. When people think about going to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist for a problem like loneliness yeah. or depression, um, the, the, the Hollywood thing that they think is going to happen because they see it in Hollywood movies is they're going to discuss their childhood and talk a lot about stuff <laughs> okay. and, and, and come back for lots of different sessions. Now, the, the social cure is, is much more pragmatic and it's very action-oriented. You're going to go out and go and do something. And I think there's a fundamental issue here about the fact people aren't expecting that from a psychologist. Um, and also, the other thing about this practical action-oriented approach is it's a kind of plunging in kind of approach. You're going to have to have a go. Uh, it may not work the first time around, but you're going to have to persist. And if you persist and keep performing these actions, eventually you'll be okay. Now, uh, you may not accept that characterization of, of, of this model, but it's certainly in distinction from what most people think is going to happen when they go to a, see a psychologist, which is talk about their childhood mm -hmm. and, and talk a lot about stuff. Do, do you agree that often it comes as a surprise to people that they're not going to discuss their childhood? And do you agree again that there's a distinction between this action-oriented approach as plunging in and this kind of like, we're going to have to talk a lot about your inner dynamics as the answer. Yeah. It's, a, it's a contrast. It's a, it's a yeah. different way of thinking about the solution to people's problems. Yeah, look, I do. I think more and more people are now starting to recognise that it's not just a talking profession, that you're not just going to see a psychologist to talk about the problems that you have or the way that you perceive them to be, but also to change those problems. So when people actually go to a health professional, they're interested in, 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 in making a change to that. And the discussions... It's not, it's a combination, so psychologists will engage in a combination of both the discussion, but also uh, they will uh, engage in trying to impart some skills to people. So it's that action thing that you're actually talking about there. So I do think that psychologists try and do both of those. And the other part of that, that question that you had, which is about, look, you know, isn't this plunging people into the deep end? Look, I think that, I think that that's a good point. Um, and people can certainly feel that way. 
And that's certainly the way that some people have described it to us, particularly people who felt really disconnected for a long period of time. Um, and they've really struggled with disconnection. Um, and I think that when you do experience those challenges, it may be important to try and have a positive group experience in the first instance to see that, um, you know, the things that people are actually going to be talking to you as a psychologist, that you need to engage with groups that it can actually make a difference. I think that people need to see the reality of that and to experience, have, have a positive group experience. So they're open to now starting to think about, well, okay, yeah, I did enjoy that. I could see that there's a change. I think I can make that difference. Okay, this is work, worth working on. Um, so if you are, you know, if a psychologist feels that they're, you know, that a person isn't ready, that they might actually need to dip their toe in the water a little bit, have a positive experience of a group to begin with before they actually start being exposed to a program that starts telling them about, well, actually, these are the sorts of things that you need to do and these are the sorts of things that are going to be beneficial, then I think that that could be a useful exercise to engage in. But the other thing that I think is really interesting is that empirically driven psychologists like yourself, you're, you're, you're reviewing the data on whether your program works and the evidence is that it works and you modify the program if the data doesn't come back the right way. Empirically driven psychologists like you interested in the evidence and publishing research and publishing trials on the intervention in a very similar way that doctors might with a, with a, a new drug or a, a new surgical procedure. It seems to me that you, you that there's a tendency for empirically driven psychologists to move towards the action-oriented approach, which is something concrete is going to happen in the session. And the, the very fact that the, the, the Groups for Health has got this very clear structure in, in a way to me is aligned with that. Mm -hmm. And there's a vast army of other, other people, counsellors at the, at the other end of the spectrum, as it were, who are offering a chat or a conversation. Mm -hmm. And often when I see patients and they tell me, well, I had 20 sessions with this therapist the GP prescribed two years ago. And then I go, well, OK, so what happened? And I get a very blank look, which is they, they think, well, we, we met and we talked. And, mm -hmm. and, and they, the reason I get a blank look is they think it's perplexing that I should think that anything else could have happened. And I keep pressing the point. I say, well, you know, what did you, you know, what, what was prescribed? Mm -hmm. What was the action? What did you learn? Yeah. Yeah. What what, what was discussed? What exactly? And, and I get this, always I get a really blank look, which is like we met and we had a chat. And, and in other words, the notion is that I ventilated and I didn't expect anything else to happen. They, mm -hmm. they often are dissatisfied. They often accept they didn't get any better or didn't get much better as a result, though obviously some people do benefit from that model. So um, I want to stay with this idea that the, the, uh, and get your reaction to the notion that empirically driven psychologists tend to be at the more action-oriented end of the spectrum. Again, you, you may or may not agree. And, yeah. and this other, other, there's an army of people offering a chat and not much else. Um, and what are your thoughts? And look, there are psychologists who have, who come from those different persuasions. You're right. So there are some people who are wanting to uh, understand the different dynamics that are playing out and why it is that a person is experiencing the problems they have. Um, but there are also these evidence-based psychologists who are working on evidence-based approaches, like cognitive behaviour therapists, uh, like uh, ACT therapists, like uh, therapists who are interested in interpersonal um, therapy and the social relationships that uh, that people experience, uh, that are that are much more action oriented. So you will find that there are there are groups of psychologists who will who will promote a particular perspective, 
um, often based on what they feel might be a, uh, might be a goal or a need that a client is actually trying to trying you know uh, trying to work with, and a um, a goal that a client is actually trying to reach. One of the things that I think is beneficial of the, for the Groups for Health program is that it actually is a pretty short program when you come, come to think about it. It's about five sessions in its, um, in its face-to-face form. Um, and it's a brief enough program that it can actually be undertaken alongside other programs, alongside other therapies, alongside other discussions, uh, particularly where there are other problems that are also emerging that a person actually wants to deal with as part of their therapeutic goals. So, look, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily see these different approaches as being at odds with each other. I see them as just different approaches to dealing with problems that are presented. And hopefully what a client is actually going to be receiving is something that's going to be addressing the goals that they set with the therapist in those sessions. So um, my final question, and, and, mm-hmm. and thank you very much for a wonderful interview, and I'm sorry to have taken, taken up so much of your time, but one final question, and this is a question I always ask everyone, and it tends to leave, lead people to run screaming from the room, which <laughs> is about the personal impact of, of your own ideas that you are publishing and you are mm-hmm. um, offering to patients. So you, the, the title of the book is The Social Cure, which is a really yeah. radical idea. Has it had a personal impact on you? Have you thought differently about the groups that you're a member of? Have you taken them more seriously? Um, and uh, when you're having a conversation with other people, do you, do, you, do you become more aware of to what extent um, it, it are, are, are the social aspect of their lives when you when you think about other people? So completely separate from the from the, the formal scientific endeavor that you're engaged in, has it had a personal impact on you? Yeah, it's changed the way that I actually relate and um, think about my own health. It changes. It's changed the way. It's made me. It's made me more thoughtful. It's made me more reflective about what it is that I need to seek to improve various aspects of my health when I feel stressed. I also, you know, as a group, we actually practice very much what we preach. So you'll notice that, you know, the volume that we've published, but also a lot of my publications, I don't work in isolation. And that's largely because um, I gain a lot of benefit through uh, the ideas, but also the supports that I get from the people who are working with me. So absolutely, um, not only I practice what we preach, but I think our team, um, you know, our social cure team, our you know, researchers in the UK, in um, other universities in Australia and in our own team in the UK, we absolutely practice that. And we're very conscious of, uh, of the importance of those groups for our lives. So, Catherine Haslam, thank you very much indeed. The title of that book again, The New Psychology of Health, Unlocking the Social Cure, published by Routledge. Catherine, thank you very much. And thanks, Raj. It's been a great pleasure talking to you.